You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. told you that I wanted us to look at the two chapters today, chapter 2 and chapter 3, to see some of the parallels and some of the differences of what takes place here. In chapter 2, we see that Jonah needs deliverance. In chapter 3, we see that Nineveh needs deliverance. We're going to see how the God that we worship is a God of deliverance. We've been saying that this book is different than some of the other minor prophetic books in that it's mostly narrative. It's very little prophecy. Um, It shows how God does not bring about the oracles that he promised Uh, which is different than most of the prophetic books. We said that uh, the historical accuracy of this book has been debated, and I hope that we are encouraged, if we weren't already encouraged prior to this study, that this book really did happen, this story really did happen. Despite the doubters that uh, want to um, draw criticism to the miracles that take place in this book, both the conversion of Nineveh, the, the living of Jonah in the fish for an extended period of time, those being the major two things that people want to criticize, that... Um, we look to the fact that Jesus treated this story as historically uh, true, and we see from other aspects of Scripture that God has done far more miraculous things than causing a man to live in a fish and causing a great city to repent. And so uh, this does not conflict with other things that we believe in Scripture. And so we have no reason to really doubt the validity of this story. We said that while a lot of Sunday school classes may really harp on the, the theme of not running from God's will, that the major theme of this book is that God's mercy and compassion extends even to the heathen nations. And this was a point of emphasis that needed to be made to the children of Israel, that they had bought into their covenant relationship with Yahweh, but they were not comprehending that that uh, relationship was to extend to other peoples, that God's grace was not just for them, it was for others. And so this book helps answer the big question, is God concerned about anyone besides Israel? What's striking is that Jonah had witnessed God's compassion on Israel as a prophet of Israel. He had prophesied good things about Israel. Those things had come to pass. But we said what's alarming is that there's no attitude of repentance by Israel when these good things are given to them. That it's based strictly on God's faithfulness to his covenant with Israel that he bestows good upon his people. It's not in response to their repentance. And that's alarming because Jonah is so defiant against God, as we're going to see next week in chapter 4, when God bestows good upon Nineveh in response to their repentance. Jonah says they don't deserve forgiveness. They don't deserve for you to relent from your punishment, even though they're crying out to God in repentance. Whereas Jonah does not feel like God's justice is being compromised when he bestows good upon Israel in the midst of their sin without repentance. Jonah hopes that God will not be faithful in his compassion towards others, even though he feels that he and Israel deserve it without question. Last week we looked at chapter 1, running from God to the sea. We saw that Jonah is ultimately a tragic prophet. He's a tragic prophet because... Amos testifies to the role of the prophet in Amos 3, 7, and 8. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Amos 
would be completely blown away with the idea of running away from God and his command to prophesy something. He says, when the lion roars, you listen and you fear. When the lion roars and tells you to do something, you prophesy. Jonah, we saw in chapter 1 last week, defies these odds and says, I will not prophesy, I will not listen, I will run. We said he isn't scared to go to Nineveh. That's not his motivation, even though that's how I was sort of raised, that he was scared to go to Nineveh. That's not the reason that he runs. He's angry at what will happen if he does go to Nineveh. He's not concerned about his life. He's concerned that the others' lives will be saved. He's concerned that if he obeys God, that Nineveh will be spared. We said last week that part of the difficulty in obeying God, God's commands are hard on us because it requires that we disobey ourselves. In order to obey God, we have to disobey ourselves. And Jonah has to learn that lesson the hard way. Jonah ultimately says, if God doesn't do things my way, I'll just leave. So Jonah was a tragic prophet in chapter 1, but we see that Yahweh is a faithful God in chapter 1. God pursues those running from him. And we highlighted the fact that Jonah's not the only one running from God in chapter 1. The sailors are also running from God. They're, uh, they're what we would group into chapter 1 of Romans. They're individuals who have rejected the knowledge of God that's available to them in creation. Instead, they've turned their worship to created things rather than the creator of things. And so ultimately everybody on that boat is running from God. They are in defiance and rebellion against Yahweh. Jonah realizes it. The sailors don't. But they're going to come to that realization through the events that take place in chapter 1. God will not let Jonah escape his presence. And so he sends the supernatural storm. And these experienced sailors recognize that it's a supernatural storm. They don't try to fight it with all their training that they've received on the sea. They recognize immediately, we've got to start crying out to the gods. Any god, every god, somebody needs to save us from this. And they start appealing to every god they can think of. Everybody's kind of rallied together. Pray to whoever you pray to and see if we can get salvation from this storm. They awake Jonah and appeal to him to start praying to his god, whoever that may be, because they know they're in extreme trouble. Jonah, it's determined through the casting of lots that he's responsible They begin to question Jonah about who he is and where he comes from. Jonah confesses he's an Israelite and that he worships Yahweh and that he fears Yahweh, even though his actions would say differently. And immediately the sailors become even more fearful when they find out that he is a follower of Yahweh. It seems that they might have had some type of backstory about this God of Israel and they know who they're dealing with. And their fear increases even more so than when the storm showed up. In conversation, it's determined that Jonah would rather die then repent. His options are he can either throw himself into the ocean or he can have the sailors throw him in there or he can repent and go to Nineveh. I believe I told you last week, I believe that option was available to him. If Jonah cries out to God and says, I am sorry for the decision that I've made. And if he tells the sailors, turn back to Joppa so that I can get off this boat and go to Nineveh, I believe the storm would have stopped that God would have made way uh, for him to get back, that his, his, his path would have become straight. But Jonah says, throw me in the sea. I'm ready to drown. I'm ready to die. I would rather die than deliver the gospel, than deliver good news to Nineveh. What's striking is that the sailors would rather paddle than kill him. I mean, you would expect him to be angry. Hey, you put us in this situation. You're the one that's at fault. Let's get rid of you. Let's throw you in. But they don't want to kill him. They start paddling even harder, trying to save him and try to avoid the idea of throwing him in. But eventually, it's inevitable, they toss him into the ocean. And then when the sea uh, stops, 
we see that they respond in worship by sacrificing and making vows to Yahweh. We said that they don't do these things before. This isn't an appeal to get out of trouble. This isn't a foxhole type conversion where my life's on the line. I'll do whatever you want me to do, God. This comes post-deliverance. And it, to me, lends to the validity of their uh, response. That once everything's gone back to normal, once everything's okay, once they've been delivered from the storm, they still make effort to make these sacrifices and to make these vows. Um, And we're not told anything more about them. Uh, God is done with the sailors in this story. He seems content with the work that he has done in their life. We're going to see in chapter 2 that Jonah has a similar deliverance type experience. The sailors are delivered in chapter 1. Jonah is delivered in chapter 2. The city of Nineveh is going to be delivered in chapter 3. The difference is is that God is done with the sailors in chapter 1. He's done with Nineveh in chapter 3. But we have chapter 4, which means there's something lacking, something missing in the deliverance of Jonah in chapter 2 that requires chapter 4 be written. And that's the whole major thrust of this book. And we're going to see that next week when we come to the conclusion of Jonah. But we turn to chapter 2, our attention today. We left off in chapter 1, verse 16, so I'll read verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 2 is running to God in the belly of the fish. God doesn't abandon Jonah, even though Jonah chose it. Instead, he sovereignly sends the fish to deliver him. God is always steps ahead of us. I think this is important to realize that in the discussion about God's sovereignty and man's choice... We see man make a choice here, right? I'd rather die than follow you. I'd rather die than obey you. And God says, that's not good enough for me. I'm not going to let you make that choice. You don't have the right and prerogative to choose here. And so, in a sense, God steps in on man's freedom of choice here and says, I choose to not let you choose here. You're not going to drown. You're not going to die. You're not going to check out on me. You're not going to opt out of my plans. My plans will be accomplished, not just the the saving of Nineveh, but I'm going to save them through you because this book is really about what I want to do in you, Jonah, not that city. So God's not done with Jonah here, and he doesn't allow him to opt out. God doesn't go get a different prophet to go to Nineveh and still accomplish his plans. He says, I'm going to do it through you, Jonah, whether you like it or not. And so he sends the fish to swallow Jonah. The fish is not punishment for Jonah It's the tool of deliverance. Now, it says three days and three nights. Jesus references this. We've already looked at that in Matthew 12. Jesus says, just as Jonah was in the the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so too will I be in the grave for three days and three nights. Now, traditionally, we've held to a Jesus dying on Friday, being raised on Sunday. Well, we can't get three days and three nights in on that schedule. That's led some individuals to believe that Jesus was crucified on Wednesday so that he's in the grave Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, or he's in the grave um, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, three full days, three full nights. And they don't count Wednesday and they don't count Sunday because they're partial days. I don't know that it ultimately matters exactly the time frame. What I've learned in my studies is that there's really not a whole lot of people that want to hold fast to this three-day, three-night statement. Even though in the English language we look at it and say, 
Well, how do you get around three days and three nights? That sounds pretty obvious that it has to be three full days and three full nights. In the Hebrew language, this is used as a, a type of uh, phrase in their language that communicates uh, either potentially just an extended period of time or in their tradition, if you're talking about part of a day, you're talking about a full day when it comes to this type of statement. So most commentators don't make a huge deal about this being three days and three nights and conclude that Jesus couldn't have been crucified on a Friday. That because there's Friday, Saturday, and part of Sunday, that from the Jewish tradition that would be considered three days uh, because it includes three parts of three partial days. Again, it's not crucial to our understanding of our faith. It's not crucial to the validity of the resurrection. It's more of a third, fourth, fifth issue when we're talking about doctrine, um, and it, it, it deserves our attention and it can deserve our exploration. We're not going to take time in this setting to really try to digest a strong opinion about this. Um, what we do know is that Jonah was swallowed by the fish, and he spent enough time in there for it to be um, something that he wanted out of. And if we wanted to say that it, it's... It, it's the same as Jesus in the amount of time that Jesus spent, then it's very likely it was three partial days based on what we understand about the Jewish traditions. Um, I told you that you know there's, there's little reason for us to speculate about what type of fish it was, um, but just for curiosity's sake, some people would speculate that it was a whale shark. Uh, others would say that perhaps the sperm whale is what uh, swallowed him. Um, if it was the sperm whale, which a lot of people would, would lend to believe, uh, it would have been around 104 to 105 degrees in the belly of this whale. Um, there's also enough air in the belly of this whale for a man to, to breathe and to live and to survive. Because he's alive, he would not have been digested immediately. That's some of the scientific evidence that this could have happened. Again, I told you I'm not really concerned about the scientific evidence, that there is no scientific evidence for how somebody could survive a fiery furnace so I don't need scientific evidence for how somebody can survive the belly of a fish. Um, again, there's opportunity for further study there. We're not going to take the time to do that here today. What is important to note is that the fish responds the first time when God tells him what to do. Uh, the fish responds when God tells him where to go and what to do. And he responds again when God tells him to vomit Jonah out. Something that the man of God, the representative of Israel, fails to do as part of God's creation. Um, ultimately, we don't have answers to some of these questions about how long it was and what fish, because the focus is not what went on inside the fish, but what was going on inside of Jonah. This part of the story does become the sign that Jesus refers to. Now, I think it's interesting to note in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, Paul talking about the resurrection, he says, uh, talking about Jesus, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, when Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, we don't have scriptures of the New Testament to refer to. So he has to be saying that according to the Old Testament, Jesus was raised on the third day. We don't have the, we don't have the gospels written and put together. We don't have a canon of the New Testament. So when they talk about scriptures in the New Testament, they're talking about the Old Testament. So Paul says, according to the scriptures, Jesus was raised on the third day. Well, what's he referring to? He has to be referring to this Jonah account. Jesus has already referenced it. There's also um, 
Hosea 6.2. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. An allusion to the resurrection of Jesus here. We also know that Jesus, on uh, the occasion with the two men to Emmaus, begins to expound in Luke 24 about how the Old Testament scriptures point to him. So I, I tend to think that in that conversation with those two men, when they got to the book of Jonah, jo- Jesus begins to expound on this story and enlightens them about the importance of the time that Jesus or that Jonah spent in the fish in relation to the time that he spends in the tomb. Um, But this is the part of the story that does start to become that sign that Jesus refers to uh, where Jesus would spend time in the grave and would be resurrected to new life. In chapter 2 now, as we draw our attention back to the text, what we're going to see in this passage is, number one, the prayer of Jonah, and number two, the attitude of Jonah. The prayer of Jonah and the attitude of Jonah. If you want to write out next to the number one, the prayer of Jonah, In his prayer, there is good theology about God. There's really good theology in this prayer. It's ultimately a prayer of thanksgiving for God's deliverance. He prays this from the belly of the fish. And so, Jonah, we're not sure how aware he is of his surroundings. We're not sure that Jonah's aware that he's in a fish. What he is aware of is that he didn't drown. That in the midst of being thrown into the ocean, the, the tumultuous aspect of the storm, that he's been rescued from that. He's been saved from that. Now, while on the ship, he said, I want to die, there seems to be some level of change in his attitude when he's actually sinking to the bottom of the ocean. There seems to be a cry of prayer of deliverance, and this thanksgiving prayer flows out of the belly of the fish that he has been rescued, that he has been saved. So even Jonah recognizes the fish is a tool of deliverance rather than a tool of punishment. The punishment was the storm. The wake-up call was the storm. The fish is the first step to the deliverance of Jonah. Does anybody notice anything uh, about the prayer that seems consistent with other parts of Scripture? Anything about what chapter 2 sounds like? in regards to other aspects of Scripture. Yeah, there's a lot of phrases that are consistent with the book of Psalms. Um, The tone of Jonah's prayer mirrors the attitude of the psalmist and the images portrayed in their distress and deliverance. Just to give you a few examples, Psalm 18, 4 through 6. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. In Psalm 31, 22, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. In Psalm 69, 1 through 3. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. 
I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out, and my throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Now, that's coming from David. To our knowledge, David was never in trouble in the water. He was never drowning. He was never in the situation that Jonah is. So it's kind of interesting that David talks kind of illustratively about the distress that he's in, and Jonah is actually in this type of distress. Like, this psalm becomes very real to Jonah, who is in the midst of this type of trouble. In Psalm 69, 14 through 15, Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Psalm eighty-six, thirteen. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Psalm 139, 8-10. The last one we'll look at. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah is the prime example of what David testified in these psalms. I think it's important to, to note the similarities between the psalms and Jonah's prayer. I think it does two things for us. One, we can assure, our, our, we can assure ourselves of praying rightly by knowing Scripture. The more we know Scripture, the more assured we are that we are praying right things to God. The more our hearts and minds are aligned with God's will and his word, the more sure we are that we are not praying selfishly, but praying the heart of God. We see that come out of Jonah. Obviously, Jonah knows scripture because I think he draws on his previous knowledge of God's word in times of distress. And he's able to pray the very words of God, right? Like while these are David's words, these are inspired words by the Holy Spirit that were written down and preserved over time. And so when Jonah is crying out to God, he's not just arbitrarily throwing out words, right? Like he's throwing out words that are consistent with God's word. And I think that's important. I think it's also important because we can comfort ourselves rightly by knowing Scripture, right? Like the Psalms give us insight into how to be comforted when we're experiencing distress and trouble. And it serves as an encouragement for us. That's part of what Scripture, the, the reasoning for Scripture in Romans fifteen four. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So we can trust that the depths of the Psalms here or what ultimately give Jonah some semblance of hope when he's in the bottom of the sea in the belly of a fish. He draws upon his knowledge of Scripture, and that is a side note for us, kind of a side takeaway from this whole story, that we need a deep knowledge of Scripture to draw upon in our own life for our own encouragement, for our own perseverance, for our own hope. That when we encounter trials and temptations, which we know are promised to us in our study of First and Second Thessalonians, 
Those things are going to come, and depending on where you fall on end-time theology, for some of us, we believe it's going to come a lot more than it is right now. And we need God's word to draw upon for our hope and our encouragement. And we see that Jonah has that spiritual bank to make withdrawal from here. I think that's important to note. He acknowledges God's sovereignty in his prayer of thanksgiving. He doesn't He doesn't allude to the sailors and their responsibility for throwing him into the See, look what he says in verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Verse 3, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah's acknowledging this is you, God. You're the one responsible for this. You're responsible for the storm. You're responsible for me being cast into the sea, like this is your doing, this is what you desire. And and he's acknowledging that sovereign control over his life. He also acknowledges God's deliverance, that he has rescued him. He says, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. Jonah's saying, I know that I was in a situation where I could not help myself. Like, I couldn't deliver myself. I had given myself over to the sea. I was acknowledging that I was going to, I was ready to drown. He says, I'm ready to die, and I can't stop this now. And he acknowledges that it's only because of God's deliverance that he's saved. You, verse 6, brought me up. My life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. So he acknowledges God's sovereignty, he acknowledges God's deliverance. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's echoing what other prophets say as well, that salvation belongs to God and that only salvation can come from God. Hosea 13, 4. But I am the Lord your God. From the land of Egypt, you know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. Isaiah 43, 11. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. It's good theology, right? Like it's consistent with Scripture. He's, he's praying things that are consistent with the psalmist. He's echoing things that other prophets acknowledge about God. He says salvation belongs to the Lord. He's acknowledging that ultimately God is responsible for delivering people, right? God planned our salvation before the beginning of time, we know from the New Testament. God executes our salvation both through the work of Christ and, and through bringing the gospel to us. He executes salvation for us. He applies it to us. He sustains it. The Holy Spirit is given to us so that we do persevere till the end. It's God who works in us, not we ourselves. It's, it's God that makes sure that we make it to the end. He perfects us when, when Jesus returns. So ultimately, salvation does belong to the Lord. But I think what we have to see is the attitude of Jonah in all this. It's bad application to his heart. So good theology, 
bad application. Because he misses the application. He doesn't apply it to his heart. He's saying things verbally that are very good. Right? Like, we don't look at this prayer and say, huh, like, should this even be in Scripture? Because it's not a very good prayer. Like, it's, it's good theology. But what, and not all the commentators would agree with this. Um, but a lot of them do. So there's a difference of opinion about this. I don't see any repentance in this prayer, right? Like there's no acknowledgement that I disobeyed you, that I didn't do what you told me to do, that I ran away from your presence, that I tried to escape all this, that I tried to kill myself rather than do what you told me to do. He lacks repentance in his prayer. That's the first thing about his attitude here. He lacks repentance. There's no confession of sin. Now, when I read this and when I've read through these psalms, here's what stands out to me. His prayer mimics the psalmist who are oppressed by enemies, not by their sin. Now, there's a difference. There's some psalmists that cry. There's times when David cries out because he's wrongly being oppressed by his enemies, right? And he prays for God's deliverance. And so he highlights his circumstances. Here's my circumstances, God. I'm crying out for your deliverance. I'm not at fault here. Not that I'm a perfect king or a perfect individual, but I haven't done anything to deserve my circumstances, so I'm praying for you to deliver me from those. The Psalms sound very different when it's based upon a sin problem and not a circumstance problem. If you look at Psalm 32, David's talking about sin here. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and who is spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or, who, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. We can also reference when David's crying out about his sin with Bathsheba, that the psalm sounds different when he deserves the oppression that he's experiencing. The words that are used are different. And what we see when Jonah prays is that he's praying more from a mindset of save me from my circumstances versus save me from my sin. Now, again, some commentaries think that that repentance is intertwined in here. But chapter four happens really close to chapter two. Right. And Jonah is pouting on a hill because God is saving Nineveh. So I have a hard time seeing how Jonah repents in the belly of the fish and can be sitting on a hill three, four, five days later angry at God that he's saving Nineveh because what he has to confess in the belly of the fish is that he's sorry for not loving Nineveh, right? That's the sin. 
That's the sin. Now, we highlight the fact that he ran from God, but why did he run from God? Not because he was scared, but because he did not want Nineveh to be saved. So if Jonah repented, we would not see the attitude that we do in chapter 4. That's why I don't see repentance here. I see an initial change of heart. There, there's a, there's a, a subtle change of heart here, because obviously we know that Jonah gets out of this fish and goes to Nineveh. That's different than chapter 1. So there's a partial changing of heart here. But I don't see a cry of repentance that I was dead wrong for what I did, God. That's why I don't think God's done with Jonah after chapter 2. I don't think God looks at it and says, okay, I've done the work that I need to do in Jonah's heart. He's repented. He's been delivered. And then we can end this whole thing with chapter 3. That's not how it plays out. I think God looks at it and says, okay... There's some work going on in your heart. I'm going to vomit you out so that we can take care of Nineveh. But we're not done here, son. Like, like the work that needs to be done in your heart has not been accomplished. Jonah drops into the sea and he starts crying out for help because of his circumstances. And God graciously, I believe God graciously delivers him with the fish. Just like God graciously provided for Israel despite their repentance too. So what we're seeing in this whole process is the heathen repent, they sacrifice, they make vows, and they turn from their sin. We don't see that happening in the life of Jonah yet. He lacks repentance. He lacks proper perspective. If we look back at Jonah chapter 2, towards the end of chapter 2, I can't prove this because I can't, I can't fully determine motive through written word, right? Like that's the danger of text messages and emails is that you can't read tone. But I think it's interesting, verse 9, or verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. I mean, this is in the context of the sailors crying out to vain idols, right? Like, I, I feel like there's still some nationality coming out here. Hey, I just left those sailors. How ignorant are they that they're praying to a vain idol that cannot love like you love me, God? Like, Jonah is claiming God's mercy, which there's definitely mercy here in this chapter. I don't see the repentance, but I do see a God of mercy here. And Jonah is claiming the mercy while highlighting the fact that, man, those sailors don't get it. They don't get your mercy unbeknownst to him that they've already confessed and they are they're going back to land to worship Yahweh, right? Like, like he's not aware that in the lack of evangelization that he did, those individuals turned to Yahweh. So he's in the belly of this fish saying, I'm better than those guys that cry out to idols because my God saves me. And what he fails to realize is that his God is also saving those sailors at the exact same time. It's true. Vain idols don't have steadfast love. But what he's not realizing yet is that people that cry out to vain idols need to be turned to the God of steadfast love. And he's unwilling to tell them about that God. He doesn't want these people having any part of that God. He lacks proper perspective. He doesn't believe salvation is for Nineveh. He says salvation belongs to the Lord. So you're thinking, good, he's getting it. It's not up to Jonah to decide who should, who should be saved and who shouldn't. He's saying salvation belongs to the Lord. But really what he means is, it belongs to the Lord when he gives it to me and to Israel, but not to Nineveh. Because salvation doesn't belong to Nineveh in Jonah's mind. 
They don't deserve it. He's at odds with God's grace. He thinks he and Israel deserve God's grace while no one else does. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Again, I kind of look at that and it's almost like maybe God's just still disgusted with him. Vomits him out like you're acknowledging good theology here, but it's bad application. Don't let your good theology excuse any sinful living going on in your life. We can be real guilty of that. We've we've been raised around good theology, and we can kind of claim, well, I know God. I know right things about God, and I'm living sinfully. Man, I see this so much on Facebook, and like it, it drives me nuts when I see people posting stuff about God, and they're in blatant, rebellious sin. Like, guys and girls that are living together, not married, living together, and then claiming God's grace and mercy on their life. Like, it just disgusts me. It's like, okay, that's good theology. Like, you're quoting good verses there, right? Like, God loves his children. God provides. God always does good for his children. But you've been living with this individual for years. Like, you're not married. You're just living with this guy. Don't let good theology blind you to sinful living. Like, Jonah's crying out good theology here. But there seems to be a real lack of confession about his sin. Because he carries that sin with him to Nineveh. He carries that bad attitude all the way to Nineveh. He follows through outwardly. He does what God tells him to do. But he ain't following through on the inside. He's still running from God. Now, implication here for chapter 2. I kind of asked the question, why did God choose a fish to deliver Jonah. Why not like a piece of driftwood? Like why does God go to the extreme of sending a large fish to swallow Jonah? Why not just allow him to surface and drift on a piece of wood for three days? Right? It's still going to be a difficult experience. He's going to be out at sea. He's going to be parched. He's going to be miserable. Why does God go to the extreme of a fish? Now we're not told. We're not told. But I'm speculating here in that I think every detail God has a specific reason for in this story. And we talked about the mass conversion of Nineveh and how that's just crazy. Like, why would they listen to this? What we know from, from um, excavations, archaeology, um, the study of the culture of Nineveh is that they worshipped a specific god. Like, they worshipped multiple gods, but one of the gods that they worshipped was Dagon, the fish god. Now, I believe that the rumor came pretty quick to Nineveh, whether Jonah shared it or not. But Jesus says that Jonah was a sign in and of himself to the city. So he comes with a message, but there seems to be a sign, too. i got to believe that the people of Nineveh at least verbally heard from Jonah or from some other source that he'd been in a fish for three days. They'd been vomited out. Now, if these people yield to a fish god... And all of a sudden, a man defies odds and lives in a fish and comes out and has a message from a God. We can assume that that message from that God is greater than anything that that fish God has for us, right? Because this man and his God just defied the fish. And so I speculate that this maybe even lays the groundwork for this change of heart by the Ninevites. That here comes a man who has lived inside of a fish... We worship the God of fish. 
And this man has come with us, come to us with a message, proclaiming some message from his God. Let's listen to him. Right? Like God has shown up in chapter one and said, I'm better than all these gods you're crying out to because it ain't working. We know from other Old Testament stories that God loves to show himself better than other gods. He loves to receive the glory. And so I think that even the way that he saves Jonah is meant to point Nineveh to him. I'm better than your fish, God. I'm better than what you've previously been worshiping. You need to pay attention and listen to what I have for you. So we move into chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. God gives Jonah a restart, a second chance. And some of us would kill for this, right? Like, some of us would kill for a second opportunity to fix something that we messed up the first time. We don't always get that. Jonah gets, like, a complete restart. Like, it's like playing a video game where you, where you die, and you're like, man, just hit restart, and we can do this whole thing again. Like, Jonah said no to God. He said, kill me, sailors. I don't want anything to do with this. And God basically takes him and puts him right back where he was and says, go to Nineveh. He gives him a second chance, a restart. Now it looks on paper like Jonah capitalizes on that, right? And that's typically the story that we get in Sunday school, right? That Jonah ran from God's will. God got a hold of his attention with a whale. And then Jonah did what he was supposed to do and everybody repented and got saved. In the first chance, Jonah runs from God's will. In the second chance, God or Jonah runs from God's love. He runs completely from God's will the first time. The second time, we don't pick up on it yet. We'll pick up on it next week in chapter 4, but he's running from God's love here, right? Like he goes and delivers the message. There's no love with it. He's not bringing any perspective of love to these people. He's not motivated to go to Nineveh out of love. He's motivated out of, if I don't go, I may end up in a, in a worse situation that I just came out of. And in hindsight, I'm not really ready to die. So Jonah goes outwardly, but he doesn't go inwardly. He's still running from God. On paper, it looks like, ah, oh, Jonah doing what he's supposed to do. He's obeying God now, but he's not. He's not obeying God. He's not doing what he's supposed to do. He's not going with the right perspective that God desires for him. We said that he has a partial change of heart. He's willing to obey the command. He's not going to kill himself so that he doesn't have to go. He's going to begrudgingly go. Up to this point, we've seen God control a storm, God control a fish, and we're about to see that he also controls the hearts of sinful men, especially kings. We know that we're taught that in Scripture, that God controls the hearts of men and that God controls the hearts of kings. And we're about, to see a, we're about to see a man who is dead set on messing this up. Dead set on making sure that these people don't get saved. Like the worst candidate ever to be the guy to go in and evangelize a city. Here's a guy who doesn't want it to work. God's about to use this individual to change a whole city and to change the heart of a king. Imagine walking into New York City and changing the city, and changing the leadership of a city. Imagine walking into a, a country run by a dictator and changing the city, changing the nation, changing the king. That's what happens here. And God is completely in control of the story, whether it's nature or whether it's people. He is completely in control. and He's accomplishing his plans for what he wants to do. Number one in chapter three, the message of Jonah the message of Jonah. 
So Jonah responds. He arises. He went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. It's very possible that Jonah spent the exact same time in the city that he spent in the fish. We said that it's probably not that if you started and you didn't stop, that it would take three days to get through this city. That there's ways to understand this that stays consistent with the text. Whether it was the city, there was so much going on in the city that it would take you three days to experience it all. There's also the notion that the first day would have been Jonah accustoming himself to the people and trying to get to the officials that he needed to. So maybe on day two, he actually gets to have a conversation with the king. And then day three is him leaving the city. There's different ways to understand this. Again, it's not important, really, the amount of time that he's there. We're told that he's there in some form or fashion three days or that it takes three days to experience this city. He goes in and begins to preach. And it's a simple message. It's the message that God has given him. He goes into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. His message is that 40 days judgment is coming. The number 40 shows seriousness in Scripture when it comes to God's discipline. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Children of Israel spend 40 years in the wilderness because of their rebellion. So 40 is a significant number. It communicates that God is very serious about what's to happen here. They're given 40 days warning that judgment is coming. I believe Jonah is hoping that in 40 days these people will go away. I think he goes in there optimistically. Hey, you guys got 40 days and then you're out of here. We're not told if this is all that he said. We're not told if God told him to say more. But in this message, there's no mention of any hope. It's just doom and gloom. Now, what's interesting is that Nineveh is saved, obviously. They're spared. We know that from from this chapter. They actually become the tool of punishment that God uses on Israel because they don't repent. Isn't that interesting that, that God would save a heathen nation, wicked, sinful, violent, He spares them only to use them later to bring punishment on his people because his people don't respond the way Nineveh does. This would make Jonah even more angry if he knew that at the time, right? Like, I want these people dead, and now you're going to tell me that they're actually going to hurt Israel like down the road because they're saved from this? Like, that would have infuriated him even more. God's got purposes that are bigger than our purposes. I think it's interesting that there's no mention of the vast greatness of God's grace by Jonah. There's no mention that where sin abounds, grace abounds more. We learned that from Romans 5, 20-21. Right? Like Jonah, like, this is all we're told about his message. So was there anything included that, hey, I was just under God's judgment. Right? Like, I just needed deliverance. And God saved me. God delivered me. So this God that I'm telling you about, he's a God of grace and mercy. So maybe if you do something, he'll spare you too. Like there there doesn't seem to be any communication like that. There's no communication that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Even though he's just experienced that. He just blatantly spit in God's face and said, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. was at the bottom of the ocean and he spared And we're not sure that that ever came out of his mouth to these people, that there was any hope of salvation for them. 
I think it's important for us to note how necessary it is for us to tell others about the salvation that we've experienced. And not just a canned testimony. Here's how I got saved. But really communicating the depth of the situation that we were in. Like, hey, I'm communicating this to you that you're dead in your sin and you need salvation because I've been there. I've been in that situation. I've been under God's wrath. I've felt the weight of condemnation. I've felt the weight of coming judgment. And I've been saved from it. And you can be saved too. Don't downplay your testimony by just simply communicating it in common terms. Hey, I got saved when I was in Sunday school. You should get saved too. Like I was under the condemnation and wrath of God and I've been saved. And I'm here to communicate that the God that I serve can spare you from that wrath as well. Jonah has the ultimate podium here. I know what it's like to have God's coming judgment upon you. I was in the ocean experiencing it, and I was saved from it. In 40 days, you're going to be judged. But God's gracious, and he may spare you. We don't see that communicated. Not to say that it wasn't, but we don't have that in the text. I think what's evident is that Jonah's happy to receive God's mercy, but he's not willing to extend that same hope of mercy to others. I pray that we're not guilty of the same thing. We can't be people that are, that are happy to be saved and happy to experience God's grace every day in our life and not be the type of people that extend that same type of grace to the people that we work with, the people that we go to school with, the people that we are raised with in our families. We can't be the type of people who are willing to claim God's grace in our own life and not also be the type of people that communicate to others how they experience that same kind of grace. Otherwise, we're just as guilty of Jonah, of being saved from the depths of God's judgment and failing to tell others that they too can be saved from that. The message of Jonah, repent or not repent, just the message of Jonah, 40 days, judgment's coming. Number two, the response of Nineveh. They repent when Jonah did not. And they repent when Israel did not. They put God's people to shame. It gives the message, verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. What's interesting about this is that this is what Israel is told to do so often in the prophetic books. They're told to fast. They're told to put on the sackcloth and ashes. And they don't. So again... People downplay how long-lasting this repentance was. Okay? A lot of commentators want to say, ah, oh, these people didn't become worshipers of Yahweh. They just repented based on this recommendation, and God relented, but ultimately they would have perished in their sin. 
What I know is that they did what Israel was supposed to do. Like what God was requiring of Israel, these people do. We can downplay their repentance all we want. All I know is that they were doing what God had asked Israel to do. And Israel wasn't doing it. They're putting God's people to shame here. Because they're responding the way that God's called his people to respond. Um, and they're doing it without all the theology. Right? Like they don't know this God. That's why in verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so we may not perish. Right? Like they're not doing this because they're, they're thinking that God will be obligated to, to relent from this judgment. They're just saying, hey, maybe he will because we don't know this God. Maybe he's a holy God and a loving God. Right? Like maybe he's angry about sin, but he's also gracious and merciful. We don't know. Let's find out. Let's at least take steps to try to find this out. And maybe they're doing it without any help from Jonah. Right? Like you don't get any assurance from Jonah that this might work. Doesn't seem to be any communication from him that, hey, you should do this. This is a good thing. This might work because this is how God typically acts. They simply seem to do this on their own initiative. I think it's important that even Jonah can't mess up God's plans of salvation, right? Like sometimes we panic and think, ah, if I try to share the gospel, like I might share it wrong. I might not communicate it right. I might lead somebody in a prayer when they're not really wanting to be saved. Here's a man who's trying to mess it up, right? Like he's trying to botch it and he can't. And that ought to encourage us that if we're trying to be faithful with the gospel, that we can expect far greater results than a man who's trying to botch it. Like he's trying to not do it right. And a whole city repents and turns and, and gets in sackcloth and ashes. And the king does it too. That ought to encourage us that, that even a man who's trying to mess it up cannot mess up God's plans of salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord, not to us. I don't believe we can mess up God's salvation plans. They belong to him. We're called to be his tool. Jonah was his tool in this story, even when he didn't want to be. Let's don't sit in a corner and fail to be gospel communicators because we're afraid we'll mess up the plan. It's pretty obvious we can't. Because even if we tried to, we couldn't. I think there's some, some things that stand out to me about the validity of what the Ninevites do. One, truth is taught. Remember, we said don't downplay what the Holy Spirit can do if truth is being taught. We said Jonah's got good theology. Whether he's got a right heart or not, we can debate. He's got good theology. So truth is being taught. We're told they believe God and they acknowledge their sin. I mean, what else do we want in this story, right? Like to, to say that these guys get it. Truth is told to them, they believe it, and they acknowledge their sin, right? Like, the king says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. We said earlier that from the other prophetic books, we see that God hates their violence. And they don't try to defend it. And Jonah doesn't tell them that they're violent, right? Like, Jonah doesn't say, 40 days you're going to be judged because you're violent. He just says, 40 days you're going to be judged. The Ninevites could have said, whoa, whoa, why? Why would we be judged? Like, what have we done? But they hear this and they're like, oh, we're violent. We've got to turn from that, right? Like, like the law's written on their hearts. They don't even need to have their sin told to them. They're already, there's already a working in their hearts because of how we're made 
and how we're born after what took place in the Garden of Eden. There's a knowledge of good and evil. And they know they're evil. They don't have to be told. They're crying out. They're calling out their sin on their own without Jonah having to do it for them. They respond to the law in their hearts. They know that they, what they are guilty of and they seek to repent and change their ways. It's consistent with what we see in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They show fruit. Like they don't just wallow in their sin. They try to, they try to change something. They try to repent from it. They try to turn from it. They want to get rid of it. Acts 26, 20. They should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. I think these people are doing what they know to do in trying to keep deeds according to their repentance. Joel 2. Verse 12, this is what I was referencing earlier about Israel. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. This is for Israel. This is what Israel's told to do. And Nineveh's doing it. They don't believe God's obligated to relent. They just hope he will. They hope he's holy and and, and loving, just like Rahab did, right? Like Rahab knew that that Jericho was under God's judgment, and yet she throws herself at that God. She throws herself at the spies, and she says, look, if there's any way possible, let me be spared from this. See, Nineveh, could they had 40 days, right? Like they could have gotten a long way in 40 days. They could have vacated the city. That's what Rahab could have done. Rahab could have said, oh, the city's going to fall. I'm out of here. But she says, I can only run so far. Eventually, God's going to catch up with me, this Yahweh, this God of Israel. So she runs to him. The Ninevites could have said, oh, 40 days, let's start packing, let's get out of here. A flood's coming, a famine's coming, a meteor's coming. Whatever conjured up in their mind the judgment that was coming, there would have been the easy notion to try to escape it. Jonah thought he could escape God. But they stayed. They stay and they say, look, if we're guilty, it doesn't matter where we run. Again, that's so different than Jonah, right? Jonah thinks he can run. The Ninevites are like, we can't run. Let's stay here and hope that he won't do what he said he's going to do. What's, what's interesting is that this is consistent with what God said he would do. In Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7, Seek the Lord that while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God always promises to relent his wrath when we turn to him in repentance. Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18, 7 through 8. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. So God's already promised, and Jonah would have been aware of this, which I think is why it's so condemning that he doesn't communicate this. God says, if I communicate judgment on a nation or a kingdom and they turn, and they turn to me, I will relent from that judgment. 
Now, we're not told that they're told any of that. So where do they get their hope from? Why do you think these people would have any hope that God might not bring disaster upon them? Does anything stand out to you in the text that maybe would give them some form or semblance of hope? Put yourself in their shoes. Why would you come up with the idea that maybe God would, what, what semblance of hope might you have that God would relent from this? Yeah, he gave them 40 days, right? Like if I'm hearing this, I'm thinking, okay, we got 40 days. How are we going to use it? Like he's given us 40 days. Maybe there's some hope that there's something that can be done in that 40 days to stop this. I think it's also important to note that a messenger came to tell them, right? Like we said, a lot of the other prophecies came from Israel about those nations. This is one of the incidences where the actual prophet goes to that nation. I think they're looking and saying, why would this God make this guy come to us? And why would he give us 40 days? Maybe there's hope. Maybe there's some call to repentance in the message that's been given. So I think they cling to that. I think it's also important to note that they don't cry to their gods, right? The sailors cry to their gods, but that's before they knew that, that Yahweh was on board with them. Like they weren't aware that, that Jonah was a follower of Yahweh. And then they stopped crying to their gods. But Jonah shows up and tells them immediately, and we don't see any call to Dagon or any other god to come help them, right? Like Sennacherib, who's an Assyrian, he would later say, like, your gods can't save you from me. Like there was a boldness in the Assyrian Empire that our gods are better than yours. You don't see that here. There's no, it's not, hey, we got 40 days to rally our gods up to protect us. We don't see any of that. We see an immediate abandonment of that hope. Let's turn to this God that we don't know and hope that he'll do something that we desire for him to do. I think that's important to note as well. And it may be that they had to wait 40 days to see what would happen. Like, we're not told that God told them, now that you've repented, I'm not going to bring this judgment. It may have been a countdown. Kind of like back in, in Y2K when everybody was sitting around wondering, is everything going to shut down when the year 2000 hits? I mean, it may have been, okay, tomorrow's the 40th day. What's going to happen? And then the 40th day passes, and it's a, a sigh of relief that this God is merciful, that this God is gracious. Since they believed that it was coming, there wasn't any doubt that they believed God. And they may have waited 40 days to see what type of God this was. Again, a lot of people question whether repentance was real or not. All I know is that God relents. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Here's what I do know. Mankind can trick us with repentance, but God's not fooled by this. Like, God knows what happened in their hearts. He's not fooled by it. Jesus seems to treat it as genuine. Because he, he condemns Israel for not doing what Nineveh does. He says, the people of Nineveh are going to condemn you guys on Judgment Day because you didn't respond and they did. Now, it's true that less than 100 years later, judgment does come upon this city. That God wipes it out. Prophecy of Nahum that this was going to come. So we do know that less than 100 years later... There's a reverting back to sin. But we see that when, when Noah and his guys get off the ark, that it ain't too long later that the world's sinful again, right? But we don't question Noah and whether he was in relationship with God. So I don't see any reason to dismiss this and say that these people didn't really do anything here. 
I think it was real. I think Jesus treats it as real. I think God treats it as real because he relents. I don't think that it has long-lasting effects with their children because they revert back to their old ways. But I don't think we have to downplay what happened here. Let's don't doubt the Holy Spirit in this situation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Some implications from this chapter. God's capacity to forgive is greater than our capacity to sin. God's capacity to forgive is greater than our capacity to sin. This city is evil. It's wicked. It's reached a boiling point to God where he tells Jonah, go tell them. It's done. It's over. Their sin has come before me. There's a lot of people that live in sin, and it doesn't come before God like it does here with Nineveh. I mean, it reaches a point where God says, I'm not going to tolerate it any longer. Their capacity to sin is not as great as God's capacity to forgive them. Yahweh was everything that Nineveh hoped he would be. And we learn from chapter 4, he's everything Jonah feared he would be. They're not sure who this Yahweh is, but they're hoping that he's a forgiving God. And Yahweh turns out to be everything that Nineveh hoped he was. He relents. And we learn from chapter 4, he's everything Jonah feared he would be. The type of God that would relent from punishing Nineveh. Now, this is where most people in the story, right? Like Sunday school, Jonah ran away from God. He's eaten by a whale. He goes to Nineveh, and Nineveh repents. And typically, that's where the story ends because chapter 4, like we read a couple of weeks ago, it's it's weird. And it, it seems like we're missing some verses at the end because it just it just has an anticlimactic end. Like it's, it's like a cliffhanger. Like when's part 2 coming out? What we're going to see, though, is that chapter 1 through 3 sets the purpose of the book. The whole purpose of the book is chapter 4, I believe. I believe everything that God does leading up to it is for the purpose of chapter 4. We see sacrifices after chapter 1 with the sailors. We see sacrifices after chapter 2, or at least the, the commitment to do it from Jonah. And then we see the, the sacrifices and the vows coming from Nineveh at the end of chapter 3. I told you, God is finished with the sailors and he's finished with Nineveh. Because whatever happens in their heart... Seems to be enough for God. Like, okay, I'm, 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 I've accomplished what I wanted to. The one glaring thing is chapter 2. I told you, I don't see repentance there. I don't see a, a, a change that God wants there. And that's why we have chapter 4. So chapter 1 through 3 sets the stage for chapter 4, the whole purpose of the book that we're going to see next week. God shows mercy to those who don't deserve it. Nineveh. They need deliverance. There's repentance, and they're delivered. The big difference is right here. And the consistent thing is, neither deserve it. Neither deserve deliverance, right? Like, they don't earn deliverance by getting in sackcloth and ashes. God's not, God doesn't have to relent. He has every right to punish their sin. They both need deliverance. Neither deserves it. Only one repents or shows any real signs of repentance on the inside. But yet God chooses to deliver. God shows mercy to those who don't deserve it. And the question that's going to be answered in chapter 4 is, how do we respond to that? I want us to end with just some discussion questions that I want you to still be thinking through as we're working through this book. 
Because we miss the to- we miss the point if this is just a history lesson about the book of Jonah. We've got to put ourselves into this story and figure out where we fit and to what degree we fit into what's going on here. Because we have to see ourselves in some form or fashion like Jonah. Because we're Jonah in some sense of, of who Jonah was. It may look a little bit different, but in some degree, to some extent, we are Jonah. We've already been asking, am I faithfully doing what God's called me to do? Obviously, Jonah missed that. So we've got to ask ourselves, are we faithfully doing what God's called us to do? Does our heart of compassion line up with God's heart? Both his heart for the nations and his heart for the people around us. This isn't just a missionary story where we're supposed to have an altar call and say, who wants to go to Nineveh? Who wants to leave Sanoi and, and the surrounding cities and go overseas? God has compassion for the nations and compassion for the people around us. I told you that we're far more guilty to not deliver the gospel to people around us than we are to the nations. We can rally a mission trip up real fast. It'd be real hard to rally a group to go knock on doors in Sanoi. There'd be less people signing up for that. Especially if I said, you've got to take a day off for work to do it. Most of you'd say, oh, I've got to work. A lot of you drop two weeks of vacation to get off work to go to Uganda. Is our heart for compassion for the people around us consistent with God's heart? What part of God's salvation plan do you doubt? We said that Jonah's doubting God's justice. He doesn't think Nineveh deserves it. He thinks God should be just and punish their sin. I told you last week, I don't have an issue with God's justice. I doubt his effectiveness. I don't share the gospel because I don't believe God will save people. That's my hesitation is that I've seen too many people hear the gospel from me and do nothing with it that it's it's kind of jaded me to I don't I'm not going to I'm done like I'll share the gospel when it comes up but I'm I'm losing my zeal to do it because I've seen it fail. And yet it's not a failure because we know that salvation belongs to the Lord. But what 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 doubt is there for you that keeps you from being that new covenant believer that is faithfully allowing the gospel to spill out from your life. Jonah, it was his justice. He doubted God's justice. God's not, God's not punishing like he should. For me, I doubt that God's going to save. Jonah believed that God would save, and that was his, that was his problem. My problem is that I doubt he will save. What's your doubt that hinders you from being faithful with the gospel? Am I indifferent to those around me who need to be saved? We, we referenced this earlier. Do I enjoy God's grace without sharing it? Am I so thankful to receive God's grace? Just like Jonah. I mean, I'm so thankful that God saved me from the depths. I'm so glad that he sent this fish to swallow me. Man, you are a gracious God. I am, I am turning to you. I am thankful for you. Are we guilty of being receivers of God's grace? And failures at extending that grace to others. Jonah was stingy with his salvation. He was stingy with his covenant relationship to God. He wasn't interested in informing Nineveh how to get into that relationship. He wanted to keep it to himself. Are we guilty of that? I think as we try to become more faithful with the gospel, we have to focus on the ideas of repentance 
and faith. Not getting into a big discussion about someone's wrong theology when we're trying to share the gospel, right? Like, this is the big thing that happens when you try to evangelize a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness is you end up getting sidetracked with a bunch of silly, important issues but aren't as important as the issue. That there's a misunderstanding of the gospel. And so I think as we try to be faithful with the gospel, we've got to keep it simple with the, with the message of what Jonah brought. Judgment is coming. He gave them 40 days. We don't have a time frame to give somebody. It could come tomorrow that Jesus could return. And we need to communicate that. We need to communicate that we've been saved from that. Like I said, Jonah could have communicated, I have been under this type of judgment and I've been saved from it. You are under this judgment and you can too be saved from it. If a man trying to be ineffective can save a city, how much more effective can we be if we're striving to be effective? Jonah tried to mess it up. Imagine what we could do if we're trying to not mess it up. Imagine how effective we can be if we get into God's plan and we strategize about how to be effective in reaching this city. Jonah didn't, you don't, Jonah didn't spend any time thinking about how can I deliver this message where these people will hear it, right? Like I think he went, he said, I'll deliver the message, and then I can leave and be done, and hopefully 40 days later these guys are dead. I don't think he strategized about, okay, who am I going to go to first? And how am I going to have a conversation with him? How am I going to start that conversation? And how am I going to lead into this? Like he wasn't thinking through that at all. So if a man that's trying to be ineffective can be effective, how much more effective can we be if we're trying to be effective? Now, I was convicted this morning, and I want to kind of leave you with, with these two thoughts. I was convicted this morning about how much time I spend trying to be effective at anything and everything but evangelism. So I want, to, I want you to spend some time just now as I'm talking, like, what are some things that you are intentional about being good at that pales in comparison to the attention you give at being good at sharing the gospel? Here's some examples for me. I spend a lot of time trying to be effective at fishing and hunting and trying to figure out the, the, the movement patterns of a deer and how I can kill a deer and, and the, the biting patterns of a fish and how I can catch a fish. I spent time this year trying to be good at those two things, and the amount of time I spent on those two things pales in comparison to the amount of time I spent trying to be good at sharing the gospel and really sitting through and thinking through how I can be better at, at being effective with the good news of Jesus Christ. I spend a lot of time strategizing about how to beat our rival in football at Trinity, game planning and developing football plays that will be effective when a game comes on a Thursday night, and meeting with individuals and conversing about what we can do as a football team to be effective. I spend a lot of time this year being a, trying to be effective as a football coach and not a lot of time at trying to be effective with the gospel. I've spent a lot of time the last few weeks trying to figure out the exact specs that I want to purchase in my new computer and what will be good for me and my family and what to put my money into and what not to put my money into. And I've been talking to Ben about how to be the, the, the wisest with my money when it comes to purchasing a computer. 
Those conversations don't compare to the type of conversations I've had with people about how to be good at sharing the gospel. I spend time trying to figure out how I can fit my growing family into a three-bedroom house and how we can maximize our space and how we can uh, fit toys and, and maybe build uh, bunk beds for our kids to, to, to have another child here in the next few years. And it doesn't compare to the little time that I've spent trying to be effective with the gospel. Those things aren't wrong, and being good at the things that I've mentioned aren't wrong. But if I'm not putting in far more time at trying to be effective with the plan that God has called me to communicate, then those things do become wrong, I believe. If I can't look at it and say, man, I'm becoming a good hunter and a good fisherman, I can't look at those things and say, but I'm becoming really, really effective in using my time for the gospel. And those things have become wrong in my life. My challenge to you is, what are you trying to be good at in your life right now? And how does that compare with the sharing of the gospel in your life? Because I challenged you last week. We've got to be engaging our four contacts, our neighborhoods, wherever we live, our workplace, our family, and our hobbies. I told you three of them apply to all of us. All of us have a neighborhood, an apartment complex, somewhere that we live, and there's people around us that need the gospel. We all have work or school that we go to where we're connected with people that need the gospel. And we all probably have at least one family member that needs the gospel. And then some of us have hobbies that connect us with people that need the gospel. I spend time trying to figure out how to kill a deer. I spend hours and hours and hours. I haven't seen a deer in over a month, and I keep going trying to hunt a deer. I had one conversation with a guy across the street, with two conversations with a guy across the street from me, and he didn't really want to have a conversation with me. And so I've dismissed it and said, well, he's, he doesn't get the gospel. I spend hours and hours and hours in a deer stand trying and hoping that a deer will walk by and trying to figure out what I'm doing wrong. I had two minuscule conversations with a guy across the street, and I said, well, I did my job. And I don't spend any time trying to figure out how can I be effective in reaching Bernie, who lives across the street and has been here since 97, and nobody else in the neighborhood seems to engage him at all. And I've just dismissed him and said, well, I tried to have a conversation with him, and he didn't want to talk back, so... Let's get back to trying to figure out how to kill a deer and how to catch a fish and how to beat a football team. And this is why we're here. Like we're not here just to increase our theology and, and at the end of 2014 say, man, we know God more. We could definitely look at the end of 2014 and say we're sanctified more if we have people that are in this room that have been saved because we shared the gospel with them. Because we don't have that really right now. Like we don't have anybody that we can really pinpoint and say, man, this person is a direct result of us being here in Sonoy. And if we weren't here in Sonoy, these people wouldn't have been saved. We're far more guilty of being Jonah, I think, than we want to admit. We're, we're so happy and excited that God has given us the gospel and we have his grace in our life. We're very indifferent about communicating it to anybody else. And even when we try to, if we're ineffective once or twice, we just dismiss it and say, well, I tried. And we give far more attention to other things in our life 
so that we can be better at those things. We don't give attention to this. I want to challenge you with those four contacts again. My neighborhood. How am I reaching my neighborhood? How am I reaching my workplace? How am I reaching my family? And the people that live around us, it doesn't have to be that they have to get saved because you shared the gospel with them. But they ought to come tell you that they got saved if they ever do get saved because they know that you'd want to hear about it, right? Like if if somebody in my neighborhood got saved right now, they wouldn't even think to come tell me because I haven't had a gospel conversation with them. Like they don't know that I would be praying for them. Man, the people that we live closest to, if they ever did get saved, even if it wasn't through us, there ought to be enough of a relationship there where, where, where we've communicated something to them that they would say, hey, Adam needs to know that I got saved because he's been talking to me about this. And I want to challenge you with where you're at in sharing the gospel. And where do you fit in the story with Jonah? And how do you change it? How do you change that course? How do you have this story turn out differently? And that's what we're going to see in chapter 4. The, the, the story is, is yet to be written when it was written at that time. I mean, we didn't have an ending to the Jonah story because the, the questions were left for Jonah to answer. How are you going to respond to this, Jonah? And I think it's a strategic move because it leaves us with the same questions. How are you going to respond, Sovereign Hope? How are you going to respond with what you've been called to do? Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would that you would break us with the call that you've placed on our life to communicate the gospel to others. God, I pray that you would break my heart because I don't want to be guilty of just standing up here and and calling our attention to this and, and not being faithful to do it myself. Father, I don't want us to be guilty of carrying the attitude of Jonah that we deserve God's grace and that others don't. And Father, I know that most of us would probably never verbalize that we think somebody doesn't deserve to be saved. But God, I also know that if we're honest, we'd have to admit that, frankly, we don't care if other people are saved. We may not have the hatred that Jonah has where he actually wanted to work against their salvation. But Father, I know for me, there's a lot of people in my life, I just frankly don't care if you save them. It's not a concern to me. And God, I don't want to be guilty like Jonah of, of going through the motions and, and starting some new discipline in my life where I just start trying to share the gospel with people. Father, I know it's got to be motivated out of love. That was the missing ingredient, the missing element from, from what Jonah was communicating. And so, Father, I pray that you would start that work on me inwardly so that outwardly I can become more faithful in communicating the gospel. Father, give me a love for others that will just naturally lead me to wanting to share your love with them. Father, help us to realize that for most of us, the reason this is not a a natural thing for us to do is because it doesn't flow from a heart of love. That it becomes a program, it becomes a task that just gets added to a busy to-do list already. Father, I pray that it would become a natural part of our life and that you would grow this church because we're calling people to turn and repent. 
Yeah, I pray that you'd forgive us where we've not done that in the past. Yes, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't want to just dismiss. I want to give you guys an opportunity if you've got questions or thoughts or comments to add um, to that. Because I, I want the weight of this to, to stay with you. I don't want to just pray and dismiss and then glad that's over now. We can just talk about other stuff kind of thing. Like uh, any questions on chapter 2 and 3, thoughts, agreements, like maybe ways you see this in your own life. I want you to be thinking through this as we move towards chapter 4. That um, Kind of dwell on this this week. That, and, you know, Kind of going off of what we talked about earlier. That you know, How are you going to be in the Word this year? Um, how are you going to pursue accountability? And maybe this is one of the areas that you can identify and say, I need to be sanctified in this area. Just that this is one of mine. Like, this is one of mine that I need to be sanctified in this area because this is an area that has exponential amounts of growth that needs to happen moving forward. Um, and so, I mean, this may be one of those, I mean, you may be sitting there and say, this isn't, this isn't, I need to grow in this area, but I'm, I'm being pretty faithful in this area right now as well, and, and that may be the case. But probably for a lot of us, we could identify this area and say, I'm far more like Jonah than I, I want to admit before this whole thing started, and, and this is certainly an area I need to be sanctified in. So, we encourage you to keep those things in mind as we leave today. Um, how are you going to be in the Word this year? How are you going to pursue accountability? And what are two areas that you can identify that God needs to sanctify you in? And be thinking through these questions that I've been asking you as we kind of wrap this up next week. Chapter 4. We pray that God will move us forward in the church. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.